Amen. If you have elementary age kids or younger, we would love to be part of what we have happening with our Vine Kids time. There goes Shelly and Meredith and Patrick and Georgie. Well, we are uh, into week 58. Uh, I know it's uh, quite, quite the uh, series that we're on, but week 58 of our journey through the book of Acts. And we have entered the third and final kind of phase. And there's really three phases in this book. There's the sort of birth and sending of the church. There's the missionary journeys. And then there's Paul's call to go to Rome. And so all of um, Acts is sort of into these movements. And this last movement is Paul's call to go to Rome. And it begins with the return from the third missionary journey. And we are, we are there in history. We have arrived. Paul is back from his missionary journeys that took him basically 11 years and covered about 9,000 miles. And he returns to Jerusalem against a lot of the sort of wishes of the people around him. In fact, his friends and his companions have begged him not to go because Jerusalem was a really hostile environment. Rumors had been spread that Paul was out amongst the Gentiles, not only telling them about Jesus, but telling the Jewish people that lived in those areas that they no longer had to follow uh, the customs of of the uh, Jewish people. They no longer had to obey Mosaic law, that they could do away with all those things. And so the Jews in Jerusalem, both the church Jews and the non-Christian Jewish people were, were angry and they were furious and they wanted Paul dead. And it was a really hostile environment because of these rumors that were going around. Yet Paul tells us that he feels compelled by the Holy Spirit to go back there, even against the wishes of a whole lot of people. And he returns to Jerusalem and sure enough, as he meets with the church leaders, they have to develop this plan because there's a big issue going on. They want Paul dead. And the church leaders say, look, we need to demonstrate to the people that you don't just throw out Mosaic law and customs. And so we're going to have you participate in a, in a special kind of purification rite and all these kind of things. And Paul says, okay, fine, whatever. And he goes along with it. But before it can happen, Paul's recognized and some people that are, he's with are recognized. And the whole city goes into this riot, this giant uproar. And they just freak out. And they come running from all these areas and they seize Paul and they drag him into the temple. And they shut the gates and they begin to beat him, literally beat him to death. Well, the commander of the Roman army at the time, his name was Lysias, and the army barracks sat right on the edge of the temple. And they could see from this sort of high elevated place what was happening in the temple, and they saw the gates being shut and Paul being beaten, and so Lysias sends the Roman guard down there, and they rescue Paul, and they start taking him back into the army barracks. They arrest him in front of everyone, and they bind him with chains, and they take him back to the barracks, which is really close to the temple. And the crowd is getting crazy and angry, and, and they're so afraid that they're going to kill Paul that the soldiers pick him up and carry Paul up the steps. But as he's coming up the steps, he looks at Lysias, and he says, let me please <clears throat> address the crowd. And, and so Lysias, trying to ho- hopefully that everything will sort of get kind of quells or dismissed or whatever, says, fine. And Paul stands on the steps of the army barracks, and he retells his story. He tells his story on the road to Damascus, how he was out there trying to kill and persecute Christians, and God came with this giant flash and went blinded him, and Jesus spoke to him and and changed his life and told him that his message was not going to be received in Jerusalem, but he was going to have to go to the Gentiles. And the crowd just freaked out again, right? And so they try and get at him, and, and Lysias takes Paul, and they're like, that didn't help. And so they take him back into the army barracks. And, and Paul's sitting there, right? And Lysias is trying to figure out what to do. And so he's like, look, I'm kind of done with this. I'm going to basically torture and beat Paul until he tells me 
whatever it is that's going on and why everybody's so mad at him. So we looked at this last week. They stretched him out to flog him. They either put his hands above his head on a pole or they laid him out on this table. And they went to beat him. And as they're about to start, Paul says, wait, just one quick question. Is it legal for you to beat a Roman citizen that hasn't been felt guilty? Of course, Paul knew the answer to that was no. And so the centurion, the guard that was doing the beating said, you're a Roman citizen? He said, yeah, I am. And so they go and get Lysias, and Lysias comes over and he says, you're really a Roman citizen? Says Paul says, yes, my father was a Roman citizen, and I was his, my uh, citizenship was handed down. And Lysias says, well, I had to pay for mine because it was a really corrupt society. And Lysias said, I paid a high price. And Paul said, I was born a Roman citizen. And Lysias is concerned because if he punishes unjustly a Roman citizen, he can pay with his own life. And so he says, well, great. Now what I'm going to do, I've got this guy arrested. It's causing the whole city going uproar. I'm going to figure this out. And so he takes Paul, and we ended last week where he assembles the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, 70 or 71, depends on who you talk to and what you look at, people, uh, ruling elders that are made up of the two major parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he calls them together, and he's going to take Paul before them and basically make Paul and them work this out and figure out why they are so mad, or at least that's Lysias' plan, and it's not going to go over that well, as you can imagine. So we are in uh, chapter 23 of the book of Acts, and Paul is going to be standing before the Sanhedrin, right, having nearly been torn to pieces twice uh, by the kind of mob of angry people. And so if you've got your Bible, we're going to turn there, and we're going to explore just how this goes uh, for Paul, because this is a, uh, a really interesting and challenging season in Paul's life, as we're going to see. And we're going to see what the ruling elders have to say about Paul and his uh, kind of his word. So before we get there, let's take a moment, let's pray. We'll go before the Lord. We'll ask him to teach our hearts, instruct our hearts, and then we'll open his word together and we'll, we'll explore it. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that you've rescued us even in the middle of our own disastrous choices, our own uh, pride, our own arrogance, our own chasing, our own desires, all the me-driven stuff in our life. God, you step in even in the middle of all that and you rescue us. God, we thank you that your word is alive, that it is living and active. You tell us that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. That God, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. It is your word. An encounter with it is an encounter with you, and so we don't take that lightly. God, we realize this is not an instruction book for our life. It is your very love letter poured out for us. It contains truth, and it is true. And so God, speak to our hearts through it. Take a moment in your own heart, and just in whatever way you need to, just ask God to teach you today or to speak to you, or to comfort you. Just ask the Lord to meet you this morning. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you, um, even if you don't know them. We do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them, even if you don't know their name. Just pray that God would, would move in their hearts. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we pray that you would um, instruct our hearts this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would comfort our hearts, that you would whisper to our hearts, God, that you would calm our hearts, God, that we might know you and experience you. So, Lord, we ask you to reveal yourself through your word to us this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' perfect and risen name, amen. So chapter 23 begins with Paul standing before 71, which is a pretty large crowd of the Jewish ruling elders. And even though 
the Jews were under Roman rule. The Romans allowed them to still have their governing council to sort of make decisions over daily life, right? And so Lysias takes Paul before the Sanhedrin really to try and figure out why they are so mad that they want to kill him. And Lysias' other problem is that Paul's a Roman citizen. And so he's trying to get to the bottom of this. So verse 23 says, as they're standing there, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and he said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and all good conscience to this day. And, th- and at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare insult God's high priest. And Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realize that it was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the whole assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there is neither angels nor spirits, and the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. Uh, What if a spirit or angel had spoken to him? And then the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And he ordered the troops go down and take, take him away from them uh, by force and bring him back into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, if you have testified about, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. So there's a lot going on here. And it's not quite the uh, sort of response we were going to expect, either from the Sanhedrin or from Paul himself. But he's standing there in front of 70 or 71 ruling elders, people that he knew well. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee, and he was kind of on the track to be part of the Sanhedrin and most likely uh, one of the ruling elders. And so Paul knew most of these people. It was just a few short years, a decade or so earlier, where Paul was sort of pursuing right? The movement of the Sanhedrin trying to chase these Christians either out of the country or have them arrested and killed. And so he stands before this group of ruling elders, and before they can say anything to him, he speaks to them, right? Which is a little disrespectful in terms of how the system worked back in those days. But he speaks to them and he says, listen, brothers, right? Fellow Jewish brothers, Pharisees, Sadducees, like, I feel good, like my conscience feels good. I feel like I have kept my duty to God even to this day. And that's all that Paul said. Paul says, I feel that I've honored my duty to God. My conscience is clear even to this day. And the high priest, a guy by the name of Ananias, orders that Paul gets punched right in the mouth, right? He makes one sentence and the guy next to him punches him in the face. And Paul says, God is going to strike you. You whitewashed wall, right? Basically calling him a hypocrite. A whitewashed wall is a a simple metaphor for saying you clean something up on the outside, but behind it you hide the dirtiest of contents, right? The idea being that we we look good and we say the right things, but our lives were, were really a mess. Because Ananias was known for his greed and his violence and his arrogance. In fact, when the, when the Jews revolt against Rome, they're going to go ahead and kill Ananias. He's going to get killed by his own people. No one liked him. He was greedy and he was violent. History tells us that he was a pretty horrible person. 
And so Paul says in response, God is going to strike you, you hypocrite, right? Because you're breaking the law by even having me struck. And he kind of makes a quote out of the book of Exodus. And he says, you can't strike me if I've been not been found guilty. Basically exposing the hypocrisy of the high priest or whoever it was that was speaking, right? Which, of course, doesn't go over real well. The crowd of the people there that are part of the Sanhedrin say, how dare you speak to the high priest this way? And then Paul has an interesting statement. He says, hey, I I didn't know it was the high priest, right? Because if I did, I I wouldn't have said it because the law says, in Deuteronomy 25 says, that you shouldn't speak evil against the ruler of your people. Now, a lot has been said in sort of scholarship about this statement. Did Paul really not know? Was he lying? You know, what's the deal? I mean, obviously, Paul had been a part of this group. Surely he knew that Ananias was the high priest at the time. And, and there's been a lot of back and forth. And there's really two schools of thought. And the first was that Paul's just being really sarcastic, right? He's just being really sassy. And so he's like, you're not really the high priest. I don't really acknowledge you as the high priest because a real high priest wouldn't say that, wouldn't do that. But the school of thought that's really adopted the most is actually kind of practical. It is We know from the book of Galatians that Paul had really poor eyesight. In fact, a couple of times in Galatians, they actually mention it, and we know that it even affects how Paul lives and operates. And so a lot of scholars believe that Paul, standing there, could not even make out who it was, that he was close to what would be today legally blind. And and so he didn't necessarily know who it was. He just responded to the hypocrisy, right? And he said, if I'd have known it was the high priest, then of course I wouldn't have said anything because the law says not to kind of speak evil to your, your leaders. No one really knows for sure, but either way, Paul's comment didn't go over very well. And so they were furious, right? And they got angry, and Paul was disrespectful and, and all those kind of things. But Paul, knowing the makeup of the room, decides he's going to change the subject because the room was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And so Paul says, hey, I've got, I want to tell you something. I'm on trial here, not because I've done anything, but because I'm basically proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. And a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, a little quick history about kind of the Roman, or uh, the Jewish ruling kind of class and people. There were really five groups uh, that kind of were in charge or that really ruled sort of the movements of, of Israel in the day. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the scribes, and the Zealots. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two largest groups, and they made up the 70 of the Sanhedrin. Now, Sadducees were aristocrats. They were extremely wealthy, and they held the highest positions. The Pharisees were like a working class, right? They were like middle class or working class, and they identified a little bit more with the people, all right? So the people kind of identified with the Pharisees. The Sadducees were sort of up here, and they held the high positions, and the Pharisees were like the keepers of the law. And they made up this entire group of 70. And there were two major belief systems that separated the two groups. And they were hotly disputed. And the first was the Pharisees believed that the oral tradition of the law had the same weight as the written word of God. So the written word of God says, you know, honor the Sabbath, for example. Well, the oral tradition of the Pharisees expounded on that to define the term work. What is work? Well, you can take eight steps, but not nine. You can tie this kind of knot, but you can't take that kind of knot. And it's full of that oral tradition. And they believe that that oral tradition, right, uh, was kind of superseded or went along with the written word of God. And this is where Jesus and the Pharisees really went at it. They went at it over these small pieces of the added to law. 
Well, the, the Pharisees believed the oral traditions. The, the Sadducees didn't want any part of it. They believed only the written word of God. So they believed that a lot of what the Pharisees kept and did was actually not really part of the law, which caused them to fight all the time. But the second and biggest piece was the idea that the Sadducees did not believe in any type of afterlife or resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in, in any of that. They believed that when you drew your last breath, that was it. Done. Well, the Pharisees believed in an afterlife. They believed in angels and spirits, and they believed in a resurrection that when you died, you were raised in a bodily form to be with God, but only if you kept God's perfect moral law, right? So it was a very select group of people, and that's why the Pharisees tried so desperately to keep the very legalistic letter of the law so that they could hopefully be resurrected to be with God. Well, you can imagine in this ruling class how heated those debates got. When we die, we're dead, right? Or no, when we die, we get to go be with God. And they fought all the time. Well, Paul knows this. He knows this. He's been a part of those debates. He was a Pharisee. He's the son and trained by Gamaliel, the chief Pharisee, right? His father uh, sent him away to seminary to begin at age 13 to learn these things. So what does Paul do? He takes the hot button topic and he says, hey, listen, I'm not on trial because I did anything. I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection." And the crowd just goes bonkers, right? This whole assembly just starts going crazy. And they start fighting again and uproaring again. And the Pharisees are caught in this really peculiar place, right? Because now they're arguing with the Sadducees over their theological differences. And they're going, well, if that's why Paul's on trial, then he didn't really do anything, right? Because he basically believes what we believe. Now, they didn't believe that Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus was was raised from the dead. He was a criminal. The Pharisees didn't believe that. But Paul did. But now they were arguing over the nuance of the resurrection. So the Pharisees are put in this weird place of kind of defending Paul. And so they say, we don't find anything wrong with him. And the Sadducees go crazy, and he gets in this uproar, and they begin to stand and argue with each other. And Lysias looks down, and he's like, oh, good Lord. And so he's got to go down there with the soldiers and rescue Paul again because it says that he's afraid that he's going to be torn into pieces. That's how violent this crowd had become for the third time, right? So Lysias goes and, and rescues Paul again from the hands, this time, of the Jewish ruling elders, right? Now, don't worry. The Pharisees are going to turn on Paul again. They don't love him for very long. Um, but they use him as a, kind of a part of their argument against the Sadducees, and they just fought like crazy. So Lysias grabs Paul, puts him back in the barracks, and says that night, right? We kind of end with this. That night, um, the Lord Jesus himself stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify about me in Rome. Now, all that to get us to this really kind of crazy place. And that key verse is what's going to send us through the rest of the book, all the way through the end of chapter 28. It's going to send us. It's going to be Paul's call to testify as he testified in Jerusalem, right? The Acts 1 call, that you will be my witnesses both here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth. He says, you will testify about me in Rome. And that's going to be the driving force that will take us all the way through the end of Acts 28. But there's a couple of really interesting things that I see in here that we can just look at at face value that I think are really powerful. They're not only calls on our life, but they're comforts in our life. And the first is is sort of this picture that we see about hypocrisy, right? And I think the first thing that we come in contact with is the call to sort of be true and to fight the hypocrisy in our own lives. Now, we see that the, the confrontation that Paul has with Ananias because that was the hang-up with the Pharisees was that their lives 
were somewhat hypocritical because they would say one thing and do another. And Paul points out the specific nature of that. He basically looks at Ananias, the the Sadducee, the high priest, and he says, look, you tell me that I don't keep the law, right? You tell me that you keep it perfectly, that you break it to even have someone hit me. Saying that you say one thing with your life, but your life does another. It's a picture of hypocrisy. If you've ever spent any time, really spent time with non-believers, people that are, are not into Christianity for a lot of reasons, a lot of times their issues with Christianity aren't so much God, uh, they're actually not so much the religion, and they're really not even the teachings of Jesus. Sometimes it's Jesus himself, but not usually the teachings of Jesus. Most of the issues people have with Christianity are really about Christians. They believe, and sometimes rightly so, that Christians are judgmental and hypocritical. Because we take our subjective, or so they think, subjective moral soapbox and stand on it, right? And make our moral or cultural or social arguments about their lifestyle. Knowing full well that there are things that are broken in us that we won't acknowledge. And it looks, and it is, hypocritical. Because we pick and choose issues and things that are important to us, and we stand on them morally, and we condemn the world, right? Without even addressing the own kind of brokenness in our own lives. And we kind of put it this way, that we judge other people based on their actions, and we judge ourselves based on our intentions. So I tried, that's good enough. But you failed, and so I judge you. And we pass somewhat subjectively, because we don't take the whole moral compass and apply it to ourselves and to culture. We take issues and things, and we make those the sort of pillar. And the reality is, is that it's incredibly hypocritical. And it's incredibly hypocritical because we've forgotten who we are, right? And the idea of being true to who you are is this. You've got to understand who you truly are. That you are a broken, sinful person that deserved nothing. Yet God in his infinite, amazing love and grace has rescued you after no doing of your own. And if you and I truly understood that, right, it would change the way that we see the world. It would change the way the world, world saw Christ followers. Because we would understand that it wasn't our moral movements that make us right, but it was the rescue and saving grace of Jesus Christ. We are called to be true to who we are. And who you are is a broken, sinful person that has been saved by Jesus. We've got to fight hypocrisy. And I'm not talking about fighting hypocrisy because we're going to try and live morally better. I'm talking about fighting hypocrisy by doing one thing. All right, And this, this literally will be the secret for you trying to fight the hypocrisy in your own life, and I know you're sitting here going, well, I'm not really a hypocrite, right? Well, I, mean, I am. My entire life is. I am a sinful person, right? And I say things that I don't mean, and I do things that I wish I didn't do, and my words very seldom match up with my actions. It's who I am. But this secret will really change the game if we could figure out a way to live it, and that's this. That if we could live with, right, the love and the grace that Jesus has lavished on us. Think about that for a minute. If we could live with the same love and grace that Jesus lavished on us. Like if we saw the world the way that Jesus saw us. That if we understood exactly what God did for us. And we loved the world in that way. And people in that way. And we gave the people in our life the same grace that Jesus gave us, 
it would be a game changer. And here's what the funny thing is that for a people, Christians, that talk about grace, we really don't know much about it because we don't live it. We don't give it to ourselves, and we don't give it to the people around us. It's much easier for us to give grace to that kind of lowly, broken, drug addict sinner than it is to our own wife or husband. We hold them responsible for things that we would never hold ourselves for and that we would free someone else for, and we live on that grudge. Because we're not living with the same grace and love that Jesus has lavished on us. If we really realized who we were, that you were nothing, that you did nothing, and that you are nothing, right? If we really believed that, that I was nothing without Jesus, that I did nothing to earn his grace, and that I am nothing without him, it would change the way that we see people. It would change the way that we watch the news. It would change the way that we saw people of other political parties. It would change the way we saw people of other religions. It would change the way we saw the world. Not that we wouldn't look at the scripture and say there are certain truth lines here, but it would change the way that we saw and talked and spoke and looked at people. Because I would realize that I am one situation away from doing the thing that I never thought I was capable of doing. Because in my sinfulness, I'm capable of anything. The first call that we see is that we've got to be true and fight hypocrisy in our own lives. And we do that by living with the same grace and love that Jesus poured out on us. And some of you in here need to show that grace and love to the person sitting next to you. Because we've allowed the resentment to develop and frustration because they've hurt us or they've abandoned us or they haven't cared for us. And guess what? You've done all those things to God. And what does he do? He loves you anyway. And if he can love you that way, then your call is to love that person that way. And sometimes forgiveness, right, is just a reflection of the grace that we have to believe about ourselves and what God has given us. So we be true and fight the hypocrisy in our own life. The second thing that we see comes on this idea of the resurrection. So the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are fighting like crazy, right? They're fighting over a really important issue. It's not trivial. They're fighting over whether or not there is a real resurrection or there is an afterlife. And we are called as followers of Christ to be hopeful because the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Now think about the Sadducees' position in life. When you draw your last breath, that's it. You came from nothing, you will return to nothing. You've got 10, 20, 40, 60, 80, however many years you have. And when your lungs exhale the last time, that's it. It's over. And it's not a culturally unpopular view. If you know or spend any time with anybody that's an atheist, a true, real atheist, and a lot of agnostics, you will realize that this view is held very widely culturally. That we believe we came from Nothing, and then when our last breath happens, we return to nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but that is the most hopeless existence imaginable to me. I can't imagine going through life thinking that not only is there no hope, that no one, God in particular, is not in control, that we are being tossed around at the end of this life, it's just over. For some, that may be comforting. For me, it's earth-shatteringly hopeless. Like, why draw breath? As followers of Christ, we are called to be hopeful because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Now, the Pharisees got there the wrong way. 
And oh, how the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Because here's the truth about a follower of Christ, is that this world is not the end. It is full of struggles and hurts. It is full of difficulties and challenges. And it is full of its beauties and amazing moments as well. But in the middle of all that, we recognize that it's not over here, that we were created to stand before the King of Kings, to worship Him forever, to be in His glory and His presence, where there will be no more tears and no more hurt and no more pain, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I can't imagine going through life without that hope. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. I just kind of mark it. You don't have to turn there. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. He says, But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we're false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if he didn't raise him, then we are liars. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile, your faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost forever. If only this life we had hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than all men. Basically what what Paul's saying is that everything in my life is built around this truth of the resurrection. Everything. And if it's not true, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, our faith, our preaching, my very existence is a lie and it's futile and it's a waste. And all men should pity us. They should look at us and say, what a sorry, sad group of people. That's how vitally important the resurrection is. Jesus' death on the cross was for our sin. But if God didn't raise him from the dead, Jesus is just another guy who claimed to be God who is buried in the ground. But God in his infinite, incredible glory raised Jesus from the dead. And my entire life as a follower of Christ hangs on that truth. And it changes everything. And it gives hope that even in the darkest nights, even the most difficult struggles, even the most fearful times, even the most unknown things, that there is an eternal glory that outweighs all of that. That whatever you're walking through now is not the end. Whether that's deep illness with a friend or a loved one or yourself, or whether that's a difficult time of financial disturbance, or whether it's just a lonely period, it is not the end. This life has no victory over you. Sin has no victory over you. But we have hope because God conquered death. So we're called to be true, to fight the hypocrisy in our life, to be hopeful because the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. And then my my favorite and final part that I want to do this morning is that last almost throwaway verse at the very end, verse 11. Lysias has taken Paul. He's put him back in the barracks. He's locked up. He's laying there alone. And that following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. If you have testified about me in Rome, you will also testify, or testify about me in Jerusalem, you will also testify about me in Rome. It's almost sort of a throwaway at the end, but it is absolutely incredible. And you've got to understand the season of life that Paul is in for this to be as powerful as it is, right? This past few weeks has been incredibly difficult to say the least. You remember back in Miletus, right? Where Paul fell on the sand with the elders there out of Ephesus and they wept and they embraced and Paul looked at him and he said, I will never see you again. And they cried together on the beach and their, their lives were knit together. 
and they put Paul on a boat and he makes way for Jerusalem and he makes a bunch of pit stops and everywhere he goes, the believers there say, Paul, please don't go. Like tragedy waits for you there. Death waits for you in Jerusalem. And Paul says, no, God has called me there. Am I not willing to go and follow him even if it leads to death? And they beg him. And even the companions he was with said, please don't go. And they get to Caesarea and they reluctantly follow him. And they go with him into Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's greeted by James and all the leaders of the church. And they're happy to see him. And they listen to his stories of four years and incredible movements of God for about six seconds. And they say, that's all great, but we got a huge problem. This town wants you dead. And there's a bunch of rumors going around about you, about the things that you've done, about the things that you've said, and everybody in the city hates you. We've got to figure out a way to make them like you again. I mean, imagine the town you grew up in, right? Maybe that was wherever. Imagine you go back there after leaving for college or your first job and you return and the whole city has bought into this rumor about your character or about what you did or about your marriage or what you did or didn't do. It doesn't matter. Perception is reality and they have bought into it and they want you out and they hate you and it's tarnished not only you, but it's tarnished your family because you are the son or the daughter, right? of these people, and you have brought your garbage into the city, and they hated you. I don't know if you've ever had a rumor or a gossip about your life. It's painful. And Paul returns to this gossiped rumor mill and this group of people that he knows. He was part of this Jerusalem culture. It's only 10 years. It's not like he didn't know them and their children. And the entire town turns on him. And they begin to try and beat him to death. And he's rescued by Roman soldiers by being arrested. That was his big rescue. And then he stands before his colleagues, people that he had studied in school with since he was 13 years old, which means some of these folks he had known for almost 20 years. And he stands before them all, and they just hurl insults at him. And they try and tear him limb from limb. Lysias comes down, has to save him again. And that night, as he's laying in those Roman army barracks, I don't know about you, but for me, and I don't know about Paul, I'm going to speak for him, but it would be one of the darkest nights, right? Because here's the deal. Paul didn't just decide to go to Jerusalem. God led him there. The God that he had given his life to on the road to Damascus, the God had led him for 10 years all over the world and allowed him to see some of the most difficult and challenging and amazing and beautiful things, had called him to that hate festival, had called him to stand in the middle of those angry fists and those piercing words, and then had not rescued him, but instead put him in chains in a Roman army barrack in the middle of the night. And he's got to be wondering, what now, God? I mean, really, what now? I'm laying here. I did everything you said I was going to do. I'm willing to face death, but everyone is gone. And everybody that I knew, all the people that I knew here, even my companions, they're nowhere. And I am laying here, and I have no idea what is about to unfold. And then the most incredible of incredible things happens. It says that the Lord Jesus himself stood near Paul. Think about that for just a moment. We talk about this kind of stuff a lot. God could have whispered to his heart. He could have given him this peace. I don't know if you've ever had the peace of God that has just kind of come over you. God can do that. But Paul, laying in the middle of that night in this incredibly difficult season in his life, wondering where God is, 
the Lord Jesus comes and he stands next to Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but presence is an incredibly powerful thing. Have you ever been at a place in your life where you've received devastating news or you've been through the difficult heartache? Have you ever lost someone that you loved dearly and had someone that you cared about and that you loved just be with you? Have you ever just had them slide their arm around you? Or have you ever turned into them and just sobbed? Have you ever sat with your best friend or your husband or your wife or whatever that person is and just been with them when you were facing the most difficult and tragic situation imaginable? Have you ever had someone just comfort you with their presence? Not necessarily with their words, but just that safe feeling of knowing they are right here. Think about what Jesus does for Paul. You know what he's saying? He's basically saying, Paul, you are not alone. He takes his very presence and he stands next to Paul. Presence is really powerful. But this is the very character of God, right? Jesus' very name, Emmanuel, means God with us. In chapter 28 of Matthew, when, when Jesus sends the disciples in the world the Great Commission, he says, go, right, and baptize, teaching them everything I've commanded you, and I am with you even to the very end of the age. The very promise of God is... Never alone, ever. And what Jesus is showing Paul is in the middle of his darkest night, he is not alone. He doesn't come to rescue, he doesn't come to save, he just says you're not alone. And that is the greatest and most incredible promise of God that is traced through Scripture. That whatever you are walking through, whatever you are dealing with, whatever season you are in, however lonely it feels, however much there aren't people around you that seem to support you, you are not alone. However difficult the parenting challenges, the marriage, school, singleness, whatever it is, you are not alone. It is the very core promise of God. And Jesus' presence to Paul says you are are not alone. And then listen to what Jesus says. Take courage. You have to testify about me in Rome, just as you've done in Jerusalem. Now notice what Jesus says. He doesn't stand, his physical presence does not stand next to Saul or Paul now and say, it's going to be okay. He doesn't stand next to him and say, I'm going to get you out of here. He says, it's not over. That's what take courage, you're going to Rome means. It means it's not over. Sometimes God leads us into these seasons, not so that we can see light at the end of the tunnel, but so that we can see his goodness and grace in the middle of the season. Jesus does not look at, at Paul and say, hey man, you're almost there. Hang on, light at the end of the tunnel, just one more month of difficulty and we got victory. Like we're gonna do this. He looks at Paul and he says, be courageous, man, because it's not over. And what you're going to see over the next five or four chapters is that it gets incredibly worse. But what Jesus says to Paul is, look, you are not alone and it's not over. And we don't want to hear that from God. None of us do. We don't want to hear God show up in the middle of our lives, in the middle of the darkest night, most difficult season, and say, it's not over, man. It's going to get worse. It's going to be more challenging. We want God to come in and say, three more weeks, two more days, 
hang in there. It's all going to be fine. Sometimes it's not always fine. Jesus says, I am with you, though. My presence is a picture of me with you. But the it's not over is not always dreary, right? Because the resurrection gives us a different picture of it's not over. Because also what Jesus is saying is take courage. What you've done in Jerusalem, you're going to do in Rome. This story isn't over. It is never the end. Because the resurrection gives us a hope that outweighs everything. So whatever you're walking through, whatever you're going through, whatever deepest, darkest struggle in your life, we want to cling to the it's not over, it's going to get challenging. And Jesus wants us to cling to the it's not over. This is not it. This does not define you. We have victory. It's not over is one of the most beautiful statements ever uttered by God. The resurrection is the perfect, it's not over statement. This is not as good as it will get. This is not all you can hope for. It's not over. It's both the call and the comfort. And Jesus looks at him and he says, take courage, you're not alone. It's not over. This world may get challenging and difficult, but it's not over. And he says, you're going to go to Rome and testify just as you did in Jerusalem. And he doesn't ask Paul's permission. God does not need your permission. Somewhere along the road, you and I have developed a theology where God comes to us, presents us with something, and we gather our friends and we pray over its timing and whether or not it's really God. It's just really bad theology. God doesn't need you to gather people together to pray whether or not what he has told you is true. What God tells you is true. What God calls you to is his call. He doesn't look at Paul and say, hey, I need you to think this through a little bit. It's going to be challenging, right? Let me know if you're ready. He doesn't ask. He just says, you're going. God's call is not an invitation to consult. It is a call on our life, and it comes at the most inopportune, inconvenient, and sometimes the most difficult times. Because the call of the Christ follower is death to self. And God's call does not always show up when we want it to. And it's not an invitation. It's a call. It's not something for you to contemplate and consider and wonder about, hey, maybe that would be great. If God calls you, he means I'm calling you and we're going. But the promise in that is you're not alone and it's not over. So we are called to, to be true, to fight the hypocrisy, right? To be hopeful because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything and to be comforted because Jesus will meet you in the middle of the darkest night. I don't know where you're standing today, but those truths are real. You are not alone. Be courageous because it's not over. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your truth. Thank you that it is powerful and that it's not always what we want to hear. Lord, there is a part of me that wants you to fix and rescue everything in my life. There's a part of me that when challenge comes, I want to run or I want you to fix it or I just want to quit and sometimes you look at us and you whisper it's not over and that means that we're going to be walking through more difficulty but the beautiful promise in that is that it's not alone we're not alone and that it's really not over there's hope always that outweighs everything 
Your very presence is hope. Your resurrection is the ultimate hope. And so God, challenge us as a people of God to be true to who we are, that we were nothing, that we did nothing, and that we are nothing without you. To fight hypocrisy by not trying to be better morally, but trying to love people the way that you've loved us. And to be hopeful. That when we draw our last breath, that's not it. You promised to wipe away every tear. And there will be no more pain and no more hurt. And that we will be in your presence forever. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that you tell us to be comforted. Because even in the middle of the darkest night, whatever that is and whatever that means, we are not alone. You are not alone, and it is not over. And that's both a challenging call and a beautiful promise. It's not over. And God, I am not alone. As we close our time in worship, I pray, God, that you would penetrate those truths in our heart and that we might be able to cry out to you, the God who makes those calls and comforts all at the same time. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Thank you.